I shared last night that the region that we live in is known as the gold fields because there was at one time a lot of gold, and there still is some. At the peak, the mines were employing about 300,000 people in our area. Now they're employing less than 30,000. Um, but there are some mines still operating. In fact, the, the picture I showed you of the one mine, that mine was torn down, and there, they, they took the headgear and everything down, and they left a gaping hole in the ground that goes two miles straight down. And there were a lot of illegal miners, and uh, uh, a war broke out between gangs of rival miners, and one gang killed 14 members of the other gang and threw them down into the pit. And so eventually they had to come in and close that. But um, some of you know Josh Daggett. He's a, a pastor down in Des Moines, a very close friend of mine. And he came over to visit, and I decided I'm going to take him to the mine hole in the ground. And so we get up there, and I'm a little afraid of heights, so I just, I just pointed out, I'm like, that hole goes two miles down. So Josh decides he's going to get up right to the edge and look down in and throw a rock down. And I'm, he's, he's on his belly, like army crawling up to the edge, and I'm thinking, what am I going to tell Danielle when Josh falls down into this hole? I'm not going after him. Uh, but we have had the privilege, in fact, Josh came back another time with the team, and while he was there, we had... Uh, the opportunity to go down in the mines. I've been there three or four times, and it's surreal. It is a different world. You go down into these mines. First of all, it's not like the mines of Moria. The physics of Middle Earth don't work in, in real life. So when you see like these great big caverns, that, that's not true. That doesn't happen in the mines. You have tunnels, and you get down, and there's just this spider web of tunnels all underground, and these miners know exactly where they're going and everything. But you're going down in this elevator, and it's two miles into the earth, and, and they give you these headlamps and these oxygen tanks in case an accident happens, and, and it's, it's like a big deal. And every time I go down there, to get, they take us right up to the blasting face. And, and so normally, you're walking down these big tunnels, maybe 12 feet high and everything, but when you're starting to get up to the face, sometimes you have to get on your belly and crawl under rock ledges, and I'm a little claustrophobic, and I'm thinking, they would never let us do this in the United States. Never. And the teams always say that, like, wow, I can't, and they let us go right up to the blasting face and run the drills and, and all that, and it's, it's a surreal experience. And I've got a strategy. I always keep my headlamp off, because I'm going to use everybody else's headlamp. That way, when we have a cave-in, my headlamp is the last one working. So, but here's what they do. As you're going down in the cage full of miners, uh, the mine boss, who is the guy giving us the tour, tells everybody to turn their lights off. And all the lights go off, and you cannot see a thing. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And the mine that we were in when, when Josh was there, we were touring the mine, and they were talking about how safety is, is their number one concern. Because according to the, to the government, if they have a personal injury accident, the mine gets shut down until an investigation is done by the government, which is not going to be very timely. And then whatever recommendations are made uh, are completed, and then another investigation to make sure it's been done. So it's, it's a, a long process, and sometimes the mine can be shut down for a week or two at a time. And here's the deal. The mine that we were in, taking this tour, they produce $1 million a day in gold. A million dollars a day. So to get shut down for one day, the mine is losing a million dollars for every day they're closed. So safety would be a big issue in that case. But, but here's the deal. When you're in those mines, the lights go out. It doesn't matter 
how much treasure is in that mine, it's worthless, right? When those lights go off, th- th- there's nothing that you, it doesn't matter where the gold is. You, you're not going to find it, first of all. You're not going to be able to get out. Um, you're in trouble. The Christian's biggest obstacle is spiritual blindness. When Stephen invited me to preach, he he told me that Chuck was the keynote speaker. And I'm like, well, I know what Chuck's going to talk about. He's going to talk about evangelism. And so, and then Stephen tells me that the theme of camp is facing your giants. So I thought, that's what I'll do. Facing your giants of evangelism. Right? I'm, I'm going I'm to smash the two together. So, so this is what we're going to be looking at in the next, uh, next four mornings. What is it that keeps us from being effective evangelists? And, and Chuck touched on it yesterday. His second point was, was that it's possible for a saved person to be living in the flesh. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. Spiritual blindness. What causes us to live in the flesh? Because the reality of the believer's life in Ephesians chapter 1 is this. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. So if we think about that for a second, we're we're being told that everything that we need to flourish spiritually as the new humanity recreated in Christ, everything that we need to flourish spiritually has already been given us. Do you agree with that? And the next I mean, verses 3 to 14, Paul just overflows in this, one of the most magnificent passages of, of all Scripture, as he, as he just begins to discuss our great salvation. And he discusses it in terms of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to the praise of the glory of His grace, right? Everything that we need, our salvation has been, the entire power of the triune Godhead has been brought to bear to accomplish our salvation. That's incredible, right? The Trinity, every member of the Trinity is is actively working to accomplish and assure our salvation. That's awesome. So we have, we already have access to everything we need. And what do you get for someone who has everything? What do you get for that person? Well, Paul's going to pray for them. And he has a specific prayer request. This girl that you see on the, on the slides here. Her name is Glodina. It's a funny name. Glodina is a brand of luxury bath towels in South Africa. And her dad was out of town when her mom uh, gave birth to her. And so her dad was on the phone with his mom and said whatever name that he thought, you know, he had for her. And she misheard and she thought he said Glodina, which again is a, band of, a brand of towels. So that was her name. She's named after towels. Um, She's a very vibrant personality. The first time we met her, in fact, was was at that same youth event where we met the the other two girls who kind of started that whole chain of events. Um, She came to talk to me after after the youth event, and um, she was just brokenhearted. She was was weeping, and I'm a sympathetic crier, so she's crying. Now I'm crying, And, and she's telling me her story. And so... Both of her parents um, are still alive, although both of them are sick. And they have chased after every so-called man of God, every so-called prophet. And in the African context, uh, there's, syncretism is just rampant. That's the biggest challenge that we face 
uh, in the spiritual combat is syncretism, where they've, they've married uh, the traditional witchcraft with, with Christianity, and the prosperity gospel fits right into that. And, and they had bought into that because they were looking for healing. They were looking to get well. And so they had every man of God that came on TV, every revival that came to town, they would give whatever money he said that they could afford. They would buy the holy oils. They would buy the waters. They would do the sacrifices. They would jump through all the hoops so that they could get healing. And it never worked, and it never worked. And the family was suffering, and she was suffering. And she had been in a church that was very, very fluffy, uh, prosperity gospel type of theology. And we sat down with her, and I, and I spoke to her about grace and, and, and shared the gospel with her. And, and she responded very well, very positively. And so my wife and I, for the rest of that year, we would meet with her once or twice a month. And always inviting her to church, always inviting her to do a Bible study. And, and we'd meet with her, and she... I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's like a, a fish nibbling on the hook but won't, like, grab the bait, you know? And, 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 we, were, and we couldn't figure out, like, what, why can't she get it? So we lose touch with her. She goes off to university, and, and we kept communicating for a little while, but eventually just, you know, kind of fizzled out. And I thought, I, I remember praying, Lord, she's yours. We've, we've done what we can do. Don't know why she never got it, but, but she's yours. Two years later, I get an email from her. And she wants to get in touch. And so we line up a phone call and we get on the phone and we're making small talk. And then she, finally she says, Pastor Louie, I found a new pastor. And I'm thinking, oh no. Because usually when that happens, they're going to tell me I'm, I'm making a pilgrimage and I'm buying the book and I'm now part of this cult and everything. She says, I found a new pastor. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. His name is Paul Washer. If you don't know Paul Washer, you need to look him up. Godly man, very has been used by God in, in powerful ways all around the world. And uh, here's what had happened. She went to university, and she was having trouble sleeping at night. So what she would do is she would go on YouTube and look up sermons. Of course, most of the sermons she was looking up and listening to were not quality preaching. But YouTube has this little autoplay feature where the next video just starts. So she had dozed off, and it goes from one fluffy sermon into Paul Washer and and. Um, if, if you don't know this, Paul Washer kind of came on the scene at a youth event um, several years ago. He was, he was preaching at this youth event, and he, and he was very troubled because it was supposed to be a youth leadership event, and um, it was just a, a comedy routine. The, the other pastors, th th there wasn't any preaching of the word. Um, apparently, it got very rowdy, uh, all that kind of stuff. You can look it up on YouTube. There's, there's some explanations of what happened um, but he was just very troubled in spirit. So he gets up for his first session. And the first words out of his mouth are, 90% of the people in this room are going to hell. And she's started to doze off, and that registers with her. She's like, I've never heard something like that. So she starts to wake up. Now, when he said this at the youth event, 90% of the people in this room are going to hell, the kids started to clap. And that kind of set him off a little bit. He says, I don't know what you're clapping for. I'm talking about you. And it like went awkwardly silent, apparently. And this is when she woke full up and she's, she's thinking, I've never heard a pastor say this. And she's, she's listening to that sermon. And in the middle of the sermon, she was born again. So she calls me to tell me this. And I'm like, well, why didn't I just send her to Paul Washer to begin with, right? <laughs> but... But she tells me this, and here's what she said. My whole life, 
in all the churches that, that we went to and all the sessions that we sat through, all I ever heard was the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. And she said, it wasn't until I understood the wrath of God that I could understand the love of God. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit shone his light into her soul, and she was wondrously born again. And God has used her in the last two years. Uh, several of her friends have come to Christ. Um, she was really struggling to find a good church. She's finally found one, um, and, and she's plugged in, and, and she's just um, thriving spiritually, but still has, has all kinds of challenges. She struggled with depression. In fact, she told us after the fact that the only reason she came to that youth event is because she knew if she stayed home, she was going to kill herself. She had already written a note. She would already said goodbye to all her friends. They didn't know it. Um, but she, in her own way, had been saying goodbye that whole week, and she planned to kill herself. And she chickened out and went to a youth rally instead. And, uh, and that was, we had no idea, but, but God was, was drawing her to himself. That's how it works. And if God has drawn you to himself, he has a plan. He the, the whole Bible is God's mission story of, of redemption of humanity. And the whole Bible is inviting us to participate in that mission. So what is it that keeps us? If, if we have everything that we need to flourish spiritually, how many of us would say that's not the norm of our spiritual life, that we are not living in a constant state of spiritual flourishing? Why are so many Christians struggling with depression and anxiety, struggling uh, with their witness, struggling with, with sin, struggling in their marriages, struggling with so many things? Why, are we, why is our soul so downcast if everything that we need to thrive spiritually has already been granted to us? Well, here's what Paul prays. What do you get for the person who already has everything? Listen to what he, he says. I'm going to start in verse 15. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says this, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And listen to what he says in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. This is what he says. I pray for you that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You have everything you need. You don't need more blessings. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms has already been given to you. What you need is you need the, the, the blindness to be ripped off of your eyes so that you see and have access to the treasure that is at your fingertips. Because when you do, when you do, you will be transformed. The Bible, the word of God, the narrative of salvation is a transformative narrative. It should change us. So I was studying, I, I preached through Ephesians the last few years, and I was studying this, and I came across the eyes of your heart. And I thought, well, that's an interesting phrase, right? The eyes of my heart. It's a metaphor, clearly, and, or whatever figure of speech. I don't know. I'm not an English guy, but 
It's a figure of speech, right? The eyes of your heart. I thought, that's an interesting concept. I wonder what else the Bible has to say about the eyes of my heart. And so I Googled it. So if you don't like what I'm about to say, blame Google. I Googled it, and three passages came up. And I began to read those, and I thought, oh my goodness, this this is telling me. This is what causes spiritual blindness. This is what robs me of my joy in Christ. This is what robs me of my testimony to the world. This is what keeps me from being a faithful minister of the gospel. And so here they are, the three causes of spiritual blindness. The first one we find in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. You know this passage, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. But we're just going to touch on these briefly because here's what we find. This this passage, Jesus is is giving um, his constitution of the kingdom. And this passage here, if, if your Bible is broken into paragraphs, it should be three paragraphs. Verse 19 to 21, 22 and 23, and then verse 24. So you have A, B, and C. And, and clearly the A section, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, is talking about treasure, right? Yeah? Okay, thank you. Whew. I didn't know if I was exegeting poorly or something here. It's talking about treasure. It's talking about our material wealth. And then the, the, the C section is also talking about our material wealth. No one can serve two masters. He'll hate the one, love the other, be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So clearly we've got wealth and wealth here. But in that middle, what's the middle talking about? The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? That doesn't say anything about wealth or treasure, does it? But clearly it's, it's, it's in the context. And here's what he's saying. He's using, again, a metaphor of, of our eyes being the light of our physical body and therefore our spiritual eyes being, and our physical eyes, shining the light into our soul. And what he's saying is if, if what you're pursuing, if what you are setting your, your focus, your vision, your affections upon, if, if that is darkness, you're going to be full of darkness. And clearly he's talking about the wealth of the physical realm, is he not? If your passion in life is the material benefits of this life, as we saw in this skit last night, right, this temporary life, if that's your passion, if that's what's driving you, if that's where your your energies and your resources and your time are all devoted to, to attaining, if your affection is for the things of the physical realm, you will be in spiritual darkness, Now, all of us, you know, we have a hard time. We have a, a little mini God complex, or, or maybe a huge God complex of our own. And we're invited to look into the mirror of the Word and let the Word shine the light into our hearts. And, and so I'm going to ask you, how, how is your life reflecting the light? What is your affection? What is your focus set on? Because if our focus is set on the things of the here and now, we're going to be living in darkness. 
We cannot be effective witnesses. We cannot participate actively and effectively in the mission that God has called us to do because what we are setting our gaze upon is not the glory of the risen Christ, but rather the blessings that the risen Christ has, has granted us. The material blessings. If a future archaeologist, let's say our whole civilization was just buried in dust, just instantly, and a future archaeologist 5,000 years from now didn't have access to, um, to, to, to the books and the histories and everything. So in the same way that we look back at some ancient cultures and we've got to dig, and we've got to put the pieces together, what if a future archaeologist had to do the same for our society, the same for your life? And he came across your banking statements, your credit card statements, came across your finances. And, and because that, that is what archaeologists find, and, and you know, we have to discern what the ancient world is like from things like this. And so let's say that happened to you, and somebody's going through your statements. They don't know you. They don't know what you're, they're trying to figure out, what was this person like? What was their motivating factors in life? What, what made them tick? Why did they do what they do? And they were going through your finances. What would they find? Because they're going to have to figure out what it was that, that made our society go. And if they were looking at yours, what would the evidence point to? Would the evidence point toward an affection for Christ? Or would the evidence point toward an affection for the things of this realm? Because we spend our lives chasing after dust. And that leads us into darkness. We can't flourish spiritually because it's never enough, is it? Warren Buffett famously said, at one time at least, the second richest man in the world, famously said in an interview, how much is enough? He responded to that question, one more dollar. When we set our affection on the things of this physical realm, things that will perish in their use, we're going to be living in darkness. The second thing that we find that leads us to spiritual darkness is in Luke chapter 11. Again, I'm not going to do justice to the whole passage. It could be a, a sermon series on its own, but, but let's look here because it's another statement of Jesus actually very similar to what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, but a different nuance. So Luke 11, verse 29 to 36. As the crowds were increasing, take note of that, the crowds were increasing. Jesus was never concerned with the size of the crowds other than when they started to get too big, he'd say something really hard. And he does it again here. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here it is. No one, after lighting a lamp, 
puts it away in a cellar or under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who, may, who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of the body. Right? He just said this in Matthew 6. But he's saying it in a different context now. The eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is also full of darkness. Then watch out that the light that is in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Did you catch that? What is it that Jesus is saying is going to lead us into spiritual darkness, going to keep us in spiritual darkness? He gives two signs. He says, he says first of all, you're looking for a sign. That's evil. That's wicked. You are looking for a spiritual experience, and that's no good. He says, you're going to get two signs. Jonah and the people of Nineveh, the queen of Sheba, and Solomon. What's going on there? What, what, what are the signs of Jonah, Nineveh, the Queen of Sheba, and Solomon? Well, the Queen of Sheba had come at great personal expense and great personal danger, had come from a great distance to hear from Solomon. Now, let me ask you, how many miracles of Solomon are recorded in Scripture? How great was Solomon's worship band? Actually, it was pretty good, but... The, the idea of why she came to Solomon, why did she come? Because Solomon had a reputation that the word, the revelation, the wisdom of God was coming out of Solomon's mouth, and she wanted to hear that, right? And Jonah, how many miracles did Jonah do? Jonah might be the worst revival preacher of all time. Repent. In 40 days, you're going to be destroyed, and I hope it happens. That was his message. And what happened? The whole city repented. They didn't repent because there was smoke and mirrors. They didn't repent because they went to an awesome camp. They repented because they heard the word of God coming out of somebody's mouth. And that word had the power to bring them to their knees, the entire society. Amen? And he says something greater than that is here. And we have something greater. We have the presence of God. We have his recorded, written word. We have his spirit within us, putting his word into us and teaching us its truth and through us putting it into the world and actively drawing people to himself through that word. And how are we doing with that word? If you had to shop for a church, what would you shop for? My generation has done a really poor job. We have. When we shop for a church, we are shopping for all the things that it's going to provide for us and our children and, and how it makes us feel. And the fact is, it's not about the music, and it's not about the fellowship, although those things are very important. And to say it's not about the music cuts both ways, doesn't it? Because there's certain people in my generation who have left churches because the music isn't quite upbeat enough, but then there's other people who will not allow their churches to change either. And the same heart is revealed in both of those. 
And what we find out is what keeps us in spiritual darkness is chasing after a spiritual experience rather than chasing after the word of God. Rather than hungering and thirsting. And I, I shared the story of, of these young people that come to Bible study, 30 young people that come and nobody makes them come and they just want to get into the word. God is, is good. They're thirsting, they're hungry. And, and that can only be produced by the spirit of God within us. But how is your reverence for the word? You cannot possibly hold the word of God in too high of an esteem. There's a famous preacher in South Africa. Some of you may have heard of him, Angus Buchan. If you haven't heard of Angus Buchan, maybe you've heard of Faith Like Potatoes. I don't want to kick a brother, but he had a rally in South Africa two years ago. Three million people attended. And at that rally, he preached, and one of the things he said was, we would rather see one genuine miracle than hear a thousand sermons. And he got, a, got an ovation for that. But here's the problem. When you, when you look at that, well, first of all, unfortunately, too many of our sermons are robbed of the power of God by the preacher themselves. Let's face that. We don't, we don't allow the word of God to be its own power in the Holy Spirit. We think that we have to dress it up. But, but here's the problem. Aside from dead preaching, that statement, we would rather see one genuine miracle than hear a thousand sermons, is totally disregarding what the word of God says. No one has ever been born again by a miracle other than the miracle of regeneration. Lazarus was raised from the dead. What happened to Lazarus? He died again, right? But the preaching of the cross to those who are condemned is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, the preaching of the cross is the power of God. Amen? The gospel is the power of God to salvation. This word, this book that we are called to treasure dearly, this is what transforms lives and this is what brings spiritual flourishing. It's not revival meetings. And again, I, I, I've said maybe we need to rethink African missions. Maybe we re- need to rethink our own churches and our own ministries. Because we'll send our kids to camp hoping that God gets a hold of them at camp. And praise God for camp. But camp doesn't save anybody. God uses such things. But it's the preaching of the word. And if, if you're looking for something else, you're going to be in darkness. You cannot thrive, you cannot flourish spiritually unless you have a high regard for the word of God. Again, that future archaeologist, your house is buried in dust and they're excavating your house. They're going to find on your wall, they're going to find Bible verses, right? In many of our homes, we have nice pretty framed or you know, those new things. I say new. They're new to us in Africa. They're probably old here. You know, that you print and you, like, put them on your wall. And we have Bible verses and quotes and inspirational things and stuff. But if an archaeologist were to excavate your living room, what, what are they going to find in your living room? How is your living room arranged? What's at the center of your living room? probably a TV, right? If 
we had to go back and look at it. And that ancient, or that, the, the future archaeologist is going to be looking back at us and saying, yeah, I mean, they, they had these sayings, these quotes on the wall, but, I mean, look where all the chairs are pointed. That thing, that's the big thing. Whatever was coming out of that, that was their God. And maybe you say, ah, oh, we don't have a TV. I've seen other people, and myself included, this is one of my dangers. We don't have a TV now. I'm, I'm not, we do have a tiny box TV that the kids play Wii on, but we watch our movies on a computer. <laughs> so we're, we're equally as guilty. But, but you know what my idol is? If they came and excavated my house, they would find that my family frequently keeps me from the word of God. And I love my family. And, and that's a good thing, right? Family is a good thing, but, but not when it becomes the main thing. And not when it keeps us from, from reaching out and being the light and the salt in the world. So if they looked at your day planner, what would they find? That's why we live in darkness. We're chasing after the things of this world. The third thing. This is not Jesus. This is coming from Solomon. It's actually two different passages, but, but both from Solomon, sister passages. So look at Ecclesiastes. Just be careful with Ecclesiastes. Okay? Ecclesiastes on Twitter can be very dangerous. You gotta get the context. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11. This is written by Solomon, written after he had lived his life apart from God. As, as he drifted away and he tried all the pleasures of life without God, and he says it's meaningless. It's meaningless. He says this, young man, verse 9, rejoice during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. What? Did you hear that? That's in the Bible. Again, that's why I say you got to be careful on Twitter. Because if you stop there, that's a problem. That doesn't sound like the rest of the Bible, right? Follow your heart and the desires of your eyes. That's not going to get you anywhere good. I work with a lot of young men. I would never tell a young man to do this. But Solomon's saying it tongue-in-cheek, isn't he? He says, no that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart. Put away the pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. So he tells, he tells the young man, he gives advice and he says, just follow your heart. Whatever you want to do, just do it. That's good. Yep, just, do it. just know in the end you will answer to God. But now flip over back to, to Proverbs 23. Because this is Solomon in his younger, and we, we ought to say his wiser days, when he was walking with the Lord. Proverbs 23, starting in verse 26. It says, Give me your heart, my son. Let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. 
Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly at the last, it bites like a serpent, it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, your mind will utter perverse things. You will be like the one who goes down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies on top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, I did not know it. When shall I awake? I shall seek another drink. Here's what he's saying. What keeps us in spiritual darkness is the gratification of the desires of the flesh. When we are chasing after the desires of our heart, when we are chasing after, after physical pleasure, and specifically when you take Proverbs into account, you find out he's, he's speaking about sex and he's speaking about, in this context, wine, but we're going to expand that to all sorts of addictions, Right? the desires of the flesh. When we are going about seeking to fulfill and, 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 and satisfy our physical desires, we will be in spiritual darkness. We cannot have both. You can't serve two masters, can you? So all sorts of addiction. Here it's wine. It could be other narcotics. It could be food. For many of us, it's food. Exercise sports, all kinds of things that, that we're chasing after that give us that, that gratification of the flesh. If that future archaeologist looked at your internet history, what would they find that you desire? If they looked at what you read, if they look at what you spend your time doing, what would they find? Because it's easy for us to fool ourselves, especially in a culture uh, that's as cleaned up as our culture is sometimes. Although it's getting worse, right? But, but when we're going to church. We're giving our tithe. We're, we're doing a few small group things. But, but we go to the late service or the early service so that we can catch uh, the games on Sunday afternoon. Right? All these things are reflections into our heart. Why do we do what we do? When we engage in this lifestyle, it leads us to spiritual darkness. And then we look at our church, and our churches are depressed. Our churches lack hope. Our churches lack vibrance. Our own spiritual life lacks the excitement that maybe it once possessed. Well, what have we bought into? What lies of the world have we bought into? Because all these things are going to cloud us. They're going to put our lamp under a basket so that we cannot be the light. We, we will not be evangelizing the way we should. And we have all sorts of ways to justify our idols. We can do it willy-nilly. And I don't use willy-nilly all the time. But that's what we do. So my understanding is we have an hour, right, or so before the kids get out. And that's supposed to be grown-up time. Is that right? So um, I'm going to turn it over to Stephen, but there's some questions. And I encourage you, look into the mirror of God's word. How is your family's witness to the world around you? Is your light under a basket? Has your salt lost its flavor? If it has, it's because you're in spiritual darkness. It's not that you need more from God. God's given you everything, everything you need. What you need is you need to turn your gaze back onto the source of light. Because when your heart's affections are pursuing the one who is light himself, 
that light will shine deeply into your soul. And it will transform you. Light has that kind of power. And so you need to, you need to talk together, and, and you probably need to talk with your kids and ask, what is it that's keeping us from flourishing spiritually? What is it that's hiding our witness to the world? And you might need to make some uncomfortable changes. But you've got to ask yourself, is Jesus worth it? In the end, is he worth it? Is the salvation of a soul worth it? Absolutely it is. Are we willing? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we, we desire that our lives would be light and salt to the world as you created us to be. You are the light of the world, but Father, we also are the light of the world. And so we pray that, that you would bring about a revival in your church around the world, that you would bring about revival in our churches. Father, that we would repent, that we would turn from, from the desires of the flesh, and that we would pursue Christ, that he would be our passion, our ambition, our affection, that he would be the treasure and great reward of our souls. Father, we pray that, that his surpassing value would be transformative in our own lives. May your word cut us. May your word bring us to repentance. We pray this in his name. Amen.